It's good to be back with you this Sunday after we travel to visit our grandchildren who live on the Gulf Coast in a place called Orange Beach, Alabama. And uh, I got to be with my grandson and granddaughter. Now when I say hello to my grandson, I have to look up at him. I think I could still take him, but I don't know. I don't think my knee would hold up, but he's a big boy. And I watched my granddaughter play three softball games. And to me, it was a joy. She batted four times and got three hits. And unlike my father, I didn't talk about the one time she didn't get a hit. I praised her for her three hits. It's good to see my daughter and my son-in-law. We had an adventurous trip, but it was a good trip, and we're glad to be back with you. Thank you, Dan, for preaching for me uh, last Sunday. And today we're stepping back into 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 22. We'll look at verses 6 through 23 as we continue this epic story of Saul pursuing David, at least at this portion of it. And... Um, it's, it's quite fascinating. Today is even more sad. Uh, it seems like the more we look at Saul, the sadder we get. But the reading picks up in verse number 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to the servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all uh, of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord, for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priest who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. Why is he calling him son of Ahitub? And who is Ahitub? Ahitub is the son of Phinehas, the high priest who was killed for offering strange fire. Uh, uh, Ahimelech is the grandson, so that's why he keeps mentioning it. It'll make sense as the story goes along. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, What have you conspired, or why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword? And have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as, as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, 
And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hands to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg, the Edomite, was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me and do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life with me, you shall be in safe keeping. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you would soften our hearts. Our hearts harden so quickly. They become unresponsive to you. They become distant from you. They become cold and unfeeling and unknowing. And we pray that your spirit would uh, make us come to life and prepared to hear your word today. And we pray that your word will do its work, that it will prosper where you send it, that it will bring forth fruit and bring glory to the name of the only one who is worthy, and that is your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Now, as we look at this passage, we are reminded in the letter of 1 John, particularly 2 John, Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. The letters of 1 John record five biblical references to antichrist. 1 John 2.18 twice, chapter 4, verse 3, 2 John chapter 7, although the idea of antichrist is found more widely throughout the scriptures. While there have been various views among Christians about the identity of the capital A Antichrist, we should not miss the emphasis on John that many Antichrists have come. Many. And that the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world already. Antichrist means one who opposes Christ. The ultimate Antichrist is Satan. But John was keen to alert, alert his readers that they would encounter and face many antichrists. 
he was at pains to ensure that they would recognize the spirit of Antichrist wherever it appeared. Who is a liar but he who denies uh, that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Jesus is the Christ, but a thousand years before Jesus, David was small c Christ, the anointed one. You recognize that Christ is not Jesus' name, it is a title. He is referred to as the anointed one, Mashiach, the anointed one. David himself was also known as the Mashiach, the anointed one, the one whom God chose, the man after God's own heart. God chose David, and then David became a man after God's own heart, not God chose David because he already was a man after God's own heart. David's just as flawed as any of us. But we notice that David is a type of Christ. And Saul in this passage is a figure with the spirit of the Antichrist. We know that the Holy Spirit had left Saul, had departed from him, which left him vulnerable to being demonized, as it were. And just as we have been learning about Jesus by hearing about his father David, so we should learn about the Antichrist as we hear about those who denied that David was the Messiah, the Messianic one, the anointed. A growing number of people in one way or another were confessing David. Most important and clear was Jonathan. His example in 1 Samuel 20:16. Most surprising were the Philistines of Gath, who spoke more than they knew. Most recently, our story tells us that 400 distressed people from Saul's kingdom had joined David in the cave of Adullam. That's found in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. In 1 Samuel 22, 5, we left David presumably with an entourage of 400 men hiding in the forest in Harath, somewhere in Judah. Now Saul decides to have a council meeting, and the narrative leaves David, and we return to him at the end of this chapter, but before we do, we go north to Gibeah uh, to see what Saul was doing when we were last in Gibeah in 1 Samuel 20, and our last sighting of Saul was when he hurled his spear at Jonathan in rage at his son's defense of David's innocence. By the way, Saul needed to work on his spear chucking. This guy never hit anybody, as far as I can tell in the text. He's hurling that spear all the time, and it ends up either getting stuck in the wall or they take a step and dodge it. He's not real effective. I think I would find a new weapon if I was him. But that's his trusty spear. He has it with him, and he's enraged. Uh, Since then, we have been following the movements of David as he fled from Saul, first to Nob, and then to Gath, then to the cave of Agilom, then a side trip to Moab to take care of his parents, a period in an unidentified stronghold, and hiding in the forest of Harith. And Saul hears about it. And so we arrive at Gibeah, and at an important moment for Saul, Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. This is probably a slight flashback. Saul probably heard about David and the men while they were in the stronghold, referred to in verse 4 of 22, when David stayed there for some time. 
This reaching Saul then would have been at least one reason for the prophet Gad urging David to get out from there, which he did. In any case, this was the first time since David fled from Ramah at the end of 1 Samuel 19 that Saul had uh, um, received any reliable news about his enemy. And so now that Saul had heard the news of David, where he was, what he was doing, we don't know exactly how much he had heard and what he would do now. Saul heard about David, he heard about the men with him, the 400 losers who had joined David in the cave of Agilom, last mentioned explicitly in verse 2. Keep them in mind as the scene of Gibeah unfolds for us today. And so as we think about Saul, uh, we pick up the familiar story. Saul is conducting a royal pity party. And when you read the words of Saul here, you see a paranoid person, a person who is absolutely gripped by fear, who has tunnel vision, who can't see anything but David's being a huge threat to him. And that threat must be, de- must be dealt with. But it even shapes his conversation with his most, most loyal men, even family members, Benjaminites. So we pick up the story. He addresses his inner circle of Benjamite henchmen, asking them if they think the son of Jesse... Now, when he uses the term son of Jesse to refer to David, that is derogatory. It is uh, used in a very hateful way. He wouldn't dare call him uh, uh, David, and so he berates him, as it were, and uh, says that. But um, he says, you think David's going to pass out all these government jobs and perks to them as he had? He's speaking to all his select circle for three uh, times, he had referred to them as all of you, and, there, and they have, he alleges, all entered into a conspiracy of silence, callously withholding him from intelligence about his own son, Jonathan's support, uh, subversive support for the son of Jesse. Do you see the mind of Saul? Do you see how the Spirit of God has left him and now the spirit of evil is with him? And he sees a conspiracy everywhere he looks. Any of you know people like that? People who are just conspiracy theorists. Everybody's out to get them. Everybody's out to undo them. When they look at anything, they only see the downside of it. They only reason from the fact that they must be out to get me. He does this to his own son. He does this to his own inner circle. He does it to everyone. But Doeg, or uh, the Edomite, we met him earlier, knows when it's time to speak up, and he does. He's the supervisor of the herdsmen, and he discloses, in contrast to the silent Benjamites, to the king what he saw when he was detained at Nob. Now we understand 21.7, the son of Jesse. It's important to refer to people the way Saul refers to them. Came to Nob, Doeg asserts, and Ahimelech asked direction for him from Yahweh. We know that. And also fed and armed him. And Goliath's sword was given to him, you remember, O king. Reality now seems as big as Saul's suspicions. Saul summons Ahimelech and all his father's house, and all of them come to the king. 
And Saul applies this conspiracy theory to the aid Abimelech had given to the, quote, son of Jesse. And Ahimelech musters what appears to be a capable defense, given the circumstances he was under. And Ahimelech raises questions. Doesn't David have a high rank and fine reputation at court? Isn't he the king's son-in-law? Isn't he married to your daughter, Michal? Was my seeking Yahweh's direction for him some sort of new twist? That's what priests do. I do that regularly. Where then are you getting all this conspiracy thinking? I have no clue in the whole matter. Ahimelech may have had some misgivings, but he apparently had no clear knowledge. Saul had heard enough, the edge of the sword for the priest of Yahweh. Force yourself to look at this scene. Terror, bloodbath at Gibeah, butchery, annihilation to Priestfield. The most interesting thing is Saul hands it over to Doeg, the Edomite, because none of his men would touch a priest with a sword. He turns it over to Doeg. Doeg unleashes not only on the priest, but he goes to Nob and does a complete carom job on the town. Carom in the Old Testament was where God would tell his people to invade a city and kill everything and everybody and every living creature in it. It was called the total ban. Saul should have done that to Amalekites, but here Doeg, the Edomite, does it to the priest. Their families, their wives, their children, everyone. Their parents, all killed, slaughtered by the sword. Saul authorizes this. Now we're led to point number one. I've caught you up in the story. God's enemies prove the truthfulness of his word. What does that statement mean? The king said to Doeg, you turn and lay into the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and he himself laid into the priest and put to death that day 85 men wearing the linen ephod. It was ghastly. It was brutal. It was unjust. Yet one cannot read of Doeg's slaughter without recalling the prophecy of chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 30 through 36, especially verses 31 to 33. Doeg's butchery fulfills the word of God against the house of Eli. The word had been spoken perhaps 40, maybe 50 years before now in the carnage at Gibeah and Nob it had come to pass. Never doubt the word of God nor berate the word of God God is not the author of this evil place the blame where it belongs on this renegade Edomite and the Antichrist who commands him they dared to destroy the priest of Yahweh it is a horrid wickedness for which Saul and Doeg are fully responsible and it is a clear fulfillment of the word Yahweh had spoken. Put it together and one truth becomes clear. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. God uses the wickedness of men to fulfill his word. I know that for some people that might be a bit of a challenge. But 
one can vigorously attack the enemy and at the same time be executing the enemy's will. So with Saul and with Doeg, even in their wicked slaughter of Yahweh's priest, they nevertheless fulfilled the word of God. God's enemies proved the truthfulness and veracity of his word. In their hostility against him, they carry out his will. And this truth is all over the Bible. It's clear, even if it is mysterious, it is plain, but it's not simple. It's about what the early Christians both preached in Acts 2.23 and prayed in Acts 4.27 and 28. By the way, hold your finger here and turn to Acts chapter 2 with me. I just want you to see that this is not a new principle. This principle runs all through Scripture. You will remember Habakkuk questioning God on why he would use the wicked to discipline his people. But in... 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, chapter 2, excuse me, Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. And killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening or loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David, we could read on, but I want you to look over in chapter 4 and see again in verse 27. For truly in this city, that is Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Stop one minute. The most heinous evil act in the history of the universe was predestined by God. Predestined by God. Yet at the same time, that act was carried on by wicked men who acted by their own will to do whatever was in their hearts to do. And so we come to something that theologians have called the doctrine of compatibilism. And D.A. Carson, who's someone I respect, defined compatibilism this way. The Bible as a whole, and sometimes in specific texts, presupposes and teaches both of the following propositions as true. God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. Human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth, and they are rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent upon what humans do. And so we see the two truths in Scripture, that God ordains things to come uh, to pass, but God stands behind good and evil in an asymmetrical way. Uh, if you know anything about symmetry, uh, according to what I've known and read and seen and observed and heard, the more symmetrical a person's face is, the better looking they are. 
But if a person has an asymmetrical face, then maybe they're not quite as beautiful as someone who does because the two sides don't mirror one another. They're different in some kind of way. But asymmetrical means that God stands behind good in that he actively perpetrates it. He wills it. He accomplishes it. He does it. His fingerprints are all over it. And he alone does it. But God stands behind evil in another way, in a way that we might call passive or permissive. He permits evil to occur to accomplish his sovereign will. And that is exactly what happened when Doeg killed all the uh, uh, prophets and went to Nob and finished up the job. Uh, It is mysterious, but it's what puts steel into Christian endurance if we know that as men oppose God and his people, they will only fulfill his word. It does not take away sorrow or grief or suffering, but it gives secret certainty of victory. Let me say that again. Knowing that as men oppose God and his people, they will only fulfill his word. But that itself doesn't take away our grief. It doesn't take away our sorrow. It doesn't take away our suffering. But it does give us a secret of certain victory. There is no way Yahweh's enemies can gain the edge. He has them completely outclassed. If they knew what they were doing, they would kick themselves. If Yahweh's word of judgment is so sure, certainly his word of consolation is just as solid. Number two, God's people experience the hatred of his enemy. Antichrist's characteristic passion is to crush and destroy God's people. You are subject to the powers of darkness and to their attack because they're out to get you, to destroy you, because of their hatred and hostility toward God. That's a reality we all experience. As Saul proves himself a scale model antichrist here, he vents his fury on the priest of Yahweh, Yahweh's designated servants, the representatives of his people. He annihilates a a village of Israel as though it was one of Yahweh's enemies. True, Saul does not destroy all Israel, only 85 priests and their families. Saul does not wipe out all the cities of Israel, but only one town. But Antichrist are not measured by statistics. The text is clear enough here. Saul is the destroyer of Israel. Saul joins a very infamous, infamous company. He stands among the ranks of Antichrist Pharaoh who instituted the government's postnatal cure or care policy for Hebrew babies. He, comes, he becomes colleague to the Antichrist Balak and Balaam, who by curse and by counsel respectively plotted the destruction of Abraham's seed. He stands with the Antichrist Jezebel, who tried to purge the prophets of Yahweh in 1 Kings 18, and with the Antichristus Athaliah, who wiped out well now the whole Davidic seed. Saul may be a far cry from Antichrist Haman in the book of Exeter and from the Antichrist Antiochus Epiphanes, but the difference is one of degree rather than of kind. Saul becomes one of the legion of Antichrist who always vent their spleen on the Lord's servants, whether we think of the edicts of Diocletian, 
the dragoons imposed upon the Huguenots under Louis the Fourteenth, Charles the Second, and the killing time in Scotland, or the atrocities of Idi Amin in Uganda. All these are fragments lifted from a larger, continuous, and ongoing Antichrist tradition. We should not be surprised, but neither should we forget. Even now, many Antichrists have come. Have you ever wondered, I, I, I watch some television and I watch movies, and I hear people curse Jesus all the time. They didn't, I, I never hear him curse Buddha. I never hear him curse Confucius. I never hear him curse any other religious leader. It's just Jesus. Why? Because there's a hatred of Jesus. In the heart of fallen men, there is a hatred. A destructive bent and hatred. And I'm not a prophet, and I'm not the son of a prophet. But I will say to you, we're going to see an intensity of this kind of behavior because look at our culture today and tell me five years ago you would believe what you were seeing happening in our country today. Tell me that. And how fast things are moving. There is a spirit of Antichrist working under several guises. He's always been here. He's always been present. But according to the book of Revelation, these antichrists intensify as time nears the end. There will ultimately be an antichrist, capital A, figure who will come from the sea, who's spoken of in the book of Revelation and in First and Second Thessalonians, the man of sin, who will appear. But there are many little a antichrists and a spirit of antichrist present. But they only fulfill God's will. Satan's delivery of Jesus to the cross was his own undoing. And it will always be that way for God's people. So Saul becomes one of the legion. There is one fact, however, that gives God's people some consolation. Antichrists tend to be fragile, that is weak. Saul can have his priest butchered by a mere royal order, provided he orders the right stoolie. But that is just his problem. Saul has nothing left but raw power. That's all he's got. He's increasingly isolating himself, divesting himself of whatever true support he had ever had. He has pushed his own son out. He's exterminated Yahweh's priest. He's repulsed his closest servants. Saul has had all, but is in the process of losing everything. Now he can only say in reality, Doeg is for me. When only Doeg is for me, I'm in trouble. Make no mistake, the picture of Saul is tragic. Nevertheless, to see the weakness of his power is consoling to God's people. God's remnant, therefore, reveals the invincibility of his church. Saul may have nothing left but raw power. But look around, Nob convinces us that raw power is pretty powerful. But not completely so. One of the Ahimelech's sons, it's tough doing these names. They're a mouthful. Why don't some of them call Joe and Rick and Steve? But Ahimelech's son, Abiathar escapes, flees to David, and spills the tragic news. 
and find sanctuary there with him. David treats Yahweh's priests much differently than Saul does. The whole section seems designed to depict a contrast between the way Saul has dealt with the priest and the way David receives the priest. The Saul and Ahimelech and David and Abiathar's section stand in direct opposition to one another in the text. Especially the final words of Saul and David respectively. You shall surely die, says Saul to Ahimelech. You will be safe with me, says David to Abiathar. And we don't need to downplay Abiathar's escape. We would be wrong to think it is insignificant. It is not insignificant. It carries great significance. Abiathar's escape and safety are important for they are a sign of how Yahweh preserves his people in the midst of destruction. Abiathar is another exhibit of evidence for a pattern Yahweh seems to follow. Are Israel's infant sons ordered to the depths of the Nile River by Pharaoh's decree? God will preserve one of them who will make quite a difference. His name is Moses. Does it seem that Baal has conquered and is Lord and master of Israel? Yahweh will be there and see to it that there will be 7,000 whose knees never bend to Baal. Does Athaliah's murder of the royal seed threaten to falsify the Davidic covenant? One of God's dear ladies will see that the baby Joash does not fall to Athaliah's dripping sword. Will a new pharaoh named Herod cut down Bethlehem's toddlers in his fury? One of the toddlers will escape. Herod had no idea that it was difficult, if not impossible, and it was impossible to reverse redemption once God has ordained it. Abiathar then stands as a witness to the way Yahweh preserves a remnant of his people. There will always be a remnant. The priest of Yahweh may be destroyed, but not completely destroyed. The people of God may often be put down, but never put out. Abiathar's escape does not mean that all of God's servants are immune from the world's butchery, but that the world, uh, world's butchery can never wipe out all of God's servants. The Lord does not promise that we will never die for the kingdom of God, but that the kingdom of God will never die. I like the way the Westminster Confession of Faith says it. It underscores its point in chapter 25 on the church. The confession rehearses a number of semi-disclaimers. He says, This universal church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible, and particular churches in this church are more or less pure, and public worship is performed more or less purely in them. Even the purest churches under heaven are subject to both mixture and error, and some have gone so far into error that they have become non-churches, that is, the synagogue of Satan. Then comes the bottom line, nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. And that's what Abby Athar shows us. So here in this story, we have something from the distant past that has relevance for the present day. 
You and I are children of God. But the Bible tells us clearly in the book of Ephesians that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And we are to be strong in the Lord and and, in the spirit of His might. And we're to put on the whole armor of God to withstand in the evil day. You know, when I, I preached a series of sermons on the armor of God in the book of Ephesians, it never says we have victory. It just says we stand. We withstand the evil day. The Bible is so realistic. And it will never let anyone be a hero but Jesus. Because he's the only one that's worthy. He's the only one that's accomplished salvation. He's the one that defeated the powers of darkness. Death could not hold him in the grave. He arose. We'll talk about that next week. But the wonderful truth of this passage is there has always been opposition to the people of God. And there will always be opposition to the people of God. And some of us may die for that. We may. That day may come, or we may live through it. But regardless, as Paul says, to be present with you may be more needful, but what's more desirable for me is to be with Christ. And the older I get, the more I want to be with Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage from what appears to us to be almost a very different world than the world we live in, and yet, in many significant ways, it's the same. The world has not changed. Gentiles still rage. Kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered against the Lord and against His anointed. So, Father, we pray that You would cause us, by Your grace and by the power of Your Spirit who indwells us, to persevere with our eyes set upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship today, may we give as those who love you, who long to see your face, and who recognize that everything we have is a gift that comes from you, who who loves us more than we could ever imagine. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.